Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As you're turning there, uh, last night we were over at Albertson's, and I noticed uh, as we walked out the door, there's a great big sign, and it says, Get your flu shot here. And right across the street at Walgreens, there's another big you know, sign that says, No, get your flu shot here. I thought it was curious that they're advertising those flu shots, especially if you read the news very much. I, one of my hobbies is I like to study global trends. You know, we Americans are so fixated on America that a lot of times we don't even know the events that the whole world is thinking about. We, we kind of think about our own events and hope everybody else thinks about them, but the world, I'm talking about all the rest, the, the other um, 96 or 94 percent of the world, they think about usually other things than we do. And what the world's thinking about right now is what is in their newspapers. In fact, most of the world's major newspapers last week carried articles about what is being called the super flu. And, you know, I I think it's amazing that that at least we're thinking about it because we're giving out flu shots. But let me just read to you uh, what the uh, London headlines were. It says, overdue attack. And they're not talking about Iraq, by the way. It says, uh, health experts have been looking at the genetic structure of the virus which caused the great pandemic of 1918, as well as the serious outbreak of Hong Kong flu in 1997 to help doctors combat the outbreak. There were three flu pandemics in the last century, 1918, 1957, and 1968. In 57 and 68, the outbreaks were less severe than the Spanish flu. That was what hit in 1918. They still accounted for 40 million deaths. Did you realize that in 1957 and 1968, 1% of the world's population died of the flu? in those years. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us unless we think about what 1% of America's population is, and that's almost 3 million people. That's the population of Oklahoma dying of the flu. That's what the world's thinking about right now because what they've seen is, listen to the rest of the headlines in London, researchers suggest that approximately a 30-year cycle hits between these pandemics. Epidemic is a localized problem. Pandemic is a global problem, is what they call. Which means, and this is the end of the article, which, by the way, was on November 2nd in the London uh, Times. It says, we are well overdue for another hit of the 1918 flu because it showed up on 30-year cycles. Well, we need to listen because we have had our own run-in with flu. And I want to read to you what... By the way, PBS has picked this up, and this is what PBS says. In the spring of 1918, as America mobilized for war, Private Albert Gitchell reported to the Army Hospital in Kansas. I believe that border is on Oklahoma, so it's close to home. He was diagnosed with the flu, a disease doctors knew little about. That was the spring of 1918. Before Christmas of 1918, America had been ravaged by that flu that Private Albert Gitchell had, and it killed 675,000 people, more than World War I, Spanish-American War, World War II, Vietnamese War, and all the others put together in this century died of the flu. So that's why the whole world is thinking about the flu these days. Well, there's a super influenza coming that tragically will strike many people's physical bodies. They don't know if it's this year. What happens is, if you study this, the, the uh, poultry farms of China 
where they raise mass amounts of poultry, you know, Peking duck, and also a lot of pork, remember sweet and sour pork. Those are near each other, and the poultry droppings go in the water, the pigs eat it. it pigs are genetically close to us, so when they get a flu, it mutates into a human flu, an avian virus from the, and you know, you can just read this, it's very gross, but it's happening, and it's happening. So there's going to be this, it might be in the next few years, uh, where 1% of the world will die again of the flu. And that's going to be tragic. But as we all know, there's something far worse than a sick and dying body. A sick and dying soul. And the problem is that most of us haven't even noticed that an even worse epidemic has already struck Tulsa. It's not influenza. It's what the world, not the church, but the world is calling affluenza. Now, you say, you know, that sounds funny. Well, to catch the difference, I think if we closely look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is Paul's last chapter in his first little letter to Timothy, he was warning of this epidemic back then because worse than a dying body, remember, to, to depart is far better. Uh, the Lord says your body's a tent and you're going to have to fold it up someday anyway and you need to be ready for that and looking forward to that day when you get to permanent housing. Worse than a, a dying body, which for a Christian is a blessing, is a sick and dying soul. And the, the symptoms of a sick and dying soul are all about us. And what's a problem is that many believers have these symptoms that Paul's talking about. First Corinthians, or First Timothy, chapter six, and I'm going to read all 21 verses. And I, I'm just praying that the Lord will uh, uh, open this up to us this morning. Let as many as bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. How you work is a testimony. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but let them serve them because they are benefited. Because those uh, our believers and beloved teach and exhort these things. So a little bit about a work ethic. If anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the doctrine which accords with God in this, he is proud, he knows nothing, he is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envying and strife, reviling and suspicions. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So he's talking there about errors and, and uh, greediness. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That is a good verse. Okay, won't even stop on it this morning, but that's a good verse. We have, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wow. But you, O man of God, flee these things, this greed and this disputing and all that. And pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. I love this. Lay hold on eternal life. I think that's the whole centerpiece of this chapter. 
lay hold, which I like to call vitality. Spiritual vitality is laying hold on eternal life, having a vital eternal life, realizing we have eternal life today, realizing that you and I possess eternal life today, and we should hold on to it and live like that. Verse 12 continues, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you, in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. By the way, uh, what commandment is he talking about? Well, I go right back to lay hold on eternal life, which is an imperative. Uh, Continuing, verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now comes the application. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, That means to show off and rev their engines and show off their possessions and homes and clothes, whatever. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, thinking that they have more zeros and so they're more secure. And by the way, since spring of 2000, $7.6 trillion has been lost in America. You realize that's how much the capital, the... the, uh, the asset value, especially in the, in the stocks and bonds and equity markets, have dropped almost $8 trillion. So he says, don't, don't uh, trust in uncertain riches. That's what they are. But in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. See, this is what he says we should be worked up for. Good works, giving, sharing, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. And then he says it again, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And what he's saying is life is either a process of spending our whole life backing away from our riches and dreading it, or a whole lifetime of walking toward our riches because we've sent them ahead. And that makes heaven to be anticipated, not death to be dreaded. See, it's... If you're a little troubled about dying, it could be you've got your riches in the wrong place, he's saying. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to you and into your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing that some have strayed concerning the faith. And then he says, grace be with you, amen. What a chapter. Let's bow together. Father, I pray we would lay hold on eternal life this morning. Show us how, teach us the, the priority, and help us to see the danger of the terrible flu that has gripped our city, our state, our nation, and our world. And may we as believers resist and turn from that so that we can have vitality in our eternal life today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I want to define affluenza for you because it's so dangerous the world has even noticed it. In fact, yesterday I went to the PBS website. Now, that's not, I'm not talking about Philadelphia Bible School, you know, PBS. I'm talking about 
the public broadcasting uh, service, which is secular. I mean, Bill Moyer is, uh, an, you know, whatever, uh, evolutionary, existential, whatever he is. But listen to what their website said, because when the world starts telling us uh, this, we, we're really in trouble. He says this, um, the habitual chasing of money and stuff, possession obsession. I like that. In fact, one gifted Christian writer has actually written a book about this, which I'll allude to. But in September of 1997, PBS aired a special television program. In fact, it was so wildly popular, they're airing it again this year. It's, it's so uh, accepted. The topic was a warning that the public sector has identified as the modern-day plague of materialism. Here are the symptoms they observed five years ago. This was the 1997 PBS special. It says the average American shops six hours a week while spending 40 minutes a week playing with their children. That is a symptom of affluenza, that they would rather roam the stores and wish they could buy something than get down to playing and imaginary and and playing with the blocks or swinging or running through the woods or whatever. By age 20, most Americans have seen over a million commercials. That is a symptom of affluenza. Recently, more Americans, this is five years ago, declared bankruptcy. More Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. By the way, it's going up fast. Right now what's happening is the defaults on mortgages. It's just, you ought to see the graph of that. Because everyone refinanced, one out of every five people refinanced, $5.6 trillion in refinancing of mortgages. And one in five of them are defaulting You know, they're cycling through this default. It's at a 10% level now, and it's rising. Uh, It's it's ominous if if you're hoping in real estate. 90% of all divorces, money is the the thing that they're arguing about. The Welches, right? Right? The GE president. He wants to give her a mere $40 million, and she wants more because he has $400 million. Yeah, they're fighting over that. Well, the the PBS self-diagnosis, if you go to their website, I went um, this week, and I, I did their questionnaire. And I want to read it to you. Now, this is not Paul. This is PBS. But they're saying the same thing. Okay? Listen to, to uh, this, what the world points out is the problem that, that we're facing in America. This is the title of, of the PBS uh, questionnaire. Are you escaping from affluenza is at the top. Take this quiz and find out. Answer the following as honestly as possible. Just in your mind, do this, okay? See if you're suffering from this disease, spiritual disease. Number one, do you feel your life would be happier if you had more money? Think about it with your children. Do your children think they'll be happier if they get a a good-paying job, a secure one where they make lots of money? Do they think that, do they somehow equate happiness with financial security and high income? If so... They already are showing the signs of affluenza, the world says. God's been saying it all along. Number two, I often feel overwhelmed by the amount of stuff I have and the amount of time it takes to pay for, maintain, and store it all. That's a sign of affluenza. Uh, My husband or wife or my parents and I have different views on spending. It's hard to talk about these subjects without arguing is another sign. Number four, my children are more materialistic than I was at their age. By the way, if you don't have children, what's your experience with other children you know? I mean, are they more materialistic? I mean, we had a discussion this week. My family uh, or my children were asking me, and they said, how many presents did you get for Christmas? And I said, if I got a present at Christmas, I got one. 
They said, one? I said, yeah, I can tell you what I got every year. I can tell you what I got when I was six, seven, eight, nine. They were so special, but I got one. Can you remember what you got last year for Christmas? Which one? I mean, it's just mounds of stuff. Number five, I seem to never have enough quality time with my family and other loved ones. That's a sign of affluenza. It's because we work too much and maintain our junk. Our family loves clothing with fashionable logos on it. We're usually among the first on the block to see the latest hit movie. That's a sign of this materialism. Number seven, I don't even know my neighbors. I'm disconnected from my local community. Again, we're enshrined in our own world. Uh, Number eight, I often feel rushed with too much to do and not enough time to do it all. Another bad sign. I don't enjoy my job, and I'd quit if I didn't have to have the money. Number 10, I don't feel I live in total alignment with my values and beliefs. Number 11, I don't know what the interest rates are on my credit card or exactly how much debt I have. Number 12, I only pay the monthly minimum payments on my credit card. Number 13, I don't put any money into savings. Number 14, I spend so much time shopping each month that I spend more time shopping than involved in my community. And and you might apply that to believers and say, I spend more time shopping than I spend serving the Lord. I mean, if the average person shops six to seven hours a week, that's probably true. Uh, Number uh, 15, sometimes I buy things because it's cool or fashionable, not because I love it or even need it. And number 16 in this PBS quiz is I have more extras in my life than my parents and grandparents did, and I don't even feel satisfied about what I have as I think they were. That's America today, and that's what PBS is coming across with. And what struck one uh, author who analyzed this show many years ago is that, that PBS doesn't argue against materialism on a moral basis. They don't say... You'll be pierced through with many troubles, and and you're going to not be able to fully lay hold on salvation. That's Paul's argument. You know what PBS's argument is? It's purely pragmatic. You know what the conclusion of their special is? Material wealth can't make you happy. That's what Moyer came up with. And this is his five points. He proved it. He quoted Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, you know, the railroad and and, uh, uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, the railroad baron, he said, the care of $200 million, this is in the 19th century, is enough to kill anyone. I have no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, one of the early moneyed New Yorkers, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in the world, said this, I have made many millions. They brought me absolutely no happiness. I don't think your millions or my millions will either. Here's what Andrew Carnegie said, the great steel baron. Millionaires seldom smile. And I love this one, Henry Ford. I was happier when I was a mechanic. How do you like that? As in the billionaire Ford family. Well, if affluenza is a disease, what's the cure? As this author says, if materialism is a poison, what's the antidote? Look at 1 Timothy 6 at our text. Look at verse 17. If you want to test how you're doing and how, especially in this context, we're looking at the the fourth and final realm of prayer for our families. We've looked at reality in their spiritual lives and how to have integrity in their personal lives and and how to have stability in their relational lives. Now we're going to look at how to have vitality in their eternal life, which I believe is the most important. If you thought any of the prayer series about spiritual life or relational life or anything to do with their personal life was, was important, this is the most important. That's why it's last. If you want to have a vital, eternal life on earth, Paul says it's going to be measured by how you look at your possessions because money is the monitor of our hearts and always has been. This is what Paul says to us. 
in verse 17, command those who are rich. What's the definition of rich? If you have more than food and raiment, you're rich. You have more than food and raiment. In other words, you have more than eating and covering, which includes your home that you live in. Do you have more than that? People back then did not have transportation. They did not have great stores in their IRAs and their pensions and their investments. They just didn't have that. I'm talking about not the kings. I'm talking about common people. So the biblical description of a rich person is someone that has more than, than the basics that it takes to live on. Okay? When you go and visit people around the world that are believers, did you know that one of the striking things, all of us should go on missionary trips because it's very striking. You go to visit the average person, which I have visited in Eastern Europe or in Africa or in Asia or, you know, in South America, even in Latin America, you go and visit them. You know what the first thing you'll notice is in 99% of their homes? There's nothing on the walls. There's nothing on the tables. There's nothing stacked in the cabinets. In fact, you go into their closets and they don't even have a closet. They don't stack. They don't have stuff. They just have a little bit of stuff. And they're very mobile. And they're very focused. They have all kinds of time. Their services go three hours. They don't care. They don't have grounds and, and, and hobbies and projects and, and repair work on multiple things they own. They just have this little thing they live in and, and, and a little table they sit at and the food they bring in for that day and their Bible and what they wear and something else. I mean, it's really a simple life. We're rich. Command those who are rich, which is every single one of us here in this present age, not to be haughty. That means thinking we're really something because we've got all this stuff or we're really blessed. Actually, possessions are not a blessing. They're a curse unless you're giving them away. And not to trust in uncertain riches, which if you aren't aware they're uncertain, you haven't been reading the news, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I was thinking about that this morning as I was waking up the children. I was looking out the windows, and on the second floor I could see the, the, the sunrise. And, and as I woke them up, I, I did a new method this morning. I said, wow, look at the sunrise. They sat right up in bed. You know, usually I say, it's time to get up, time to get up. And they sat right up, and they said, where? And I said, right there. Can you see it out the window? That's something God gives us richly to enjoy. Have you noticed the color of the trees around? Have you noticed how pretty the leaves are just falling? And I just love watching them fall. God says, I give you everything richly to enjoy if you have time to enjoy it. Verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. That's the only real riches. Ready to give the measure of whether you've laid hold on eternal life is whether or not you see those possessions as something you want to give away. If, if you look at them as something to protect and hold on to, you cannot lay hold on eternal life because you are putting your treasures on earth. And it will be, in fact, the Puritans used to say that for every hundred individuals that can go through great pain and suffering and loss, physical loss, physical health loss, loss of loved ones, uh, going through handicaps and, and debilitating diseases, uh, for every hundred Christians that can go through that, and make it, only one will be able to endure out of that hundred wealth and affluence. You see, it is dangerous, the condition every one of us in this room are in. It'd be better if we all had cancer. Because immediately you go, oh, how long am I going to live? Have I spent enough time with my family? Have I spent enough time with you, Lord? I mean, as soon as... I love watching people getting sick. Do you know why? Their whole life changes. 
Immediately, they don't care what car. They're not even thinking if they're going to get next year's car and the newest upgrade on their computer and whether they're going to have DVD with a flat screen, you know, and, and one universal remote with a center chair where they can listen and watch it all. You know what? They stop watching all that stuff. They start visiting people and they start talking and reading the Bible and they start asking all these very spiritual questions. I think we ought to have all of us get cancer. We'd change just like that. We'd start living for what matters. And that's what he's saying. Command those who are rich not to be all caught up in this. Let them do good, verse 18 says. Let them be rich in good works. Measure your wealth not by the digits and the electronic transfers and, and, and the trends and the percentages of returns, but in good works and the readiness to give and the willingness to share. Verse 19 How many of us have a computer program where we're tracking how much, verse 19, we've stored up for times to come in heaven? What are we storing up for? Oh, we're not going to have enough money to put the kids through school. Well, maybe you ought to rethink that. Maybe you ought to put themselves through school. They might work harder and think more about it and whatever, you know. I mean, I won't get into that right now, but... I won't have enough money for retirement. When, where is retirement in the Bible? We're not supposed to retire. We are supposed to serve the Lord all of our days. I mean, this idea that the American dream is to have a home on the greens and to drive a little cart around and hit a white ball and try and put it in a hole while billions of people have never heard about Christ is certainly not a godly goal. And, and it's amazing to think about. But look what he continues. He said, don't store up for yourselves on earth, but a good foundation for the time to come. And there comes this little lingering ending to verse 19, which he repeats twice in this passage. Lay hold on eternal life. Now, what we're going to look at, and this is just the introduction this morning, but if you want to have spiritually vital children who have vitality in their eternal life, they're going to have to see it in us parents and grandparents. If we want to pray for this generation one of the most endangered generations there's ever been because they're endangered by materialism, which, which is almost irresistible. It is. It just gets under and permeates everything, and we just start needing stuff. And, feel, and people just, they just have to shop, and they just have to... They, I mean, if a new movie comes out and they haven't seen it, they start feeling sick. If they can't, and I mean, if, if, if their computer takes more than two seconds to start up, they just feel so, you know, it's just they're behind. And, and uh, you know what I mean? If they haven't been where someone else has been, it's just the, all that is materialism. And that doesn't give us any time to lay hold on eternal life. Well, this morning we're going to do something very hard for us people living on earth to do. We're going to try and think about our eternal life instead of merely our temporal life. And I want to explain that. Temporal life is everyday life. It's life that has aches and pains, as we heard about this morning. You know, everything's falling apart and we feel old. That's temporal life. And it's deadlines and pleasures, hopes and fears, ups and downs. It's life getting up and going to school or work, waiting for special things like dinners and dates and vacations and events. It's a life that's framed by our body, our car, our job, and our world that we've experienced. In other words, it's life as we know it. That's temporary. And God says, yeah, you're in the world. But you're not of the world. There's something else. If you'll just, like last night, I was telling the Second Saturday people, God put the windows in the ark at the top because he wanted them to look up. God wants us to look up, look beyond temporal life. 
When we were saved, the Lord regenerated us by the new birth. We were born a second time. Our first birth put us on the temporal life. Our second birth puts us in eternal life. Both run parallel for 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 plus years. In fact, most of us barely experience the eternal life part. We know it's up there somewhere. We hope for it in the future. We don't exactly know what to do with it. And eternal life today is absent from most of us because we're so overwhelmed with our temporal or physical life. So how do we have vitality in our eternal life? As with everything else in the spiritual realm, it's listening to God's word. Again, and if you haven't marked it, look at verse 12 of our text, 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. That is an imperative. If you don't know how to do it, learn. If you haven't done it much, start. If you want to get good at it, practice it as much as you do, whatever you do like in this world, and it will change your life. And look at verse 19. He says it again. Uh, All this practical stuff, verse 19, the last phrase, lay hold on eternal life. Well, laying hold on eternal life is the next and final section of our study of how to grow a godly family one prayer at a time. We need to be deeply engaged in the earnest prayer that our children and grandchildren get and maintain vitality in their eternal life. Now, let's, let's just start by turning back to Matthew chapter 4. Because whenever I want to know about anything, I always first check the person I respect the most, their opinion and, and what they uh, believe and everything. I always check with them first. If they have commented on it, then that's what I want to believe, okay? So if you want to know how to lay hold on eternal life, and if you want to know how to have vitality in your eternal life, then you ought to look to the person you most deeply respect in the realm of eternal life. And that would, I hope, be the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. And we're just going to quickly look at Jesus describing the tension between a life dominated by the temporal and a life dominated by the eternal. And in the Gospels, Jesus spends hours addressing this. Hours. In fact, Jesus told 39 stories. 39 stories. And now I understand why he tells stories. We were just in the East Coast, and um, I probably already told you this. I'm getting so old I forget what I tell who. But we were in the East Coast last month, and I was speaking at this little church And what's so amazing now with the Internet and the downloads of the MP3s, these people are listening to everything. I mean, because most people sit at their computers, and I guess most people don't work at work anymore, and they just listen to the computer, I guess. I don't know how they do it, but it's so interesting. I walked in to speak at the church, and during their greeting time, I had about four or five people come up to my chair, and they say, what is it that he does? They were talking to me as if I knew what they were talking about, and I smiled at them. I always smile at people so I don't act like they're dumb, you know. And uh, I smiled at him, and I said, what do you mean? And they said, what is it that he does? I said, who? They said, the music guy at your church, the one that plays the trumpet. I said, oh, Don, what do you mean? They said, because in your sermons you always say, Don, it's so cute how you did this. You know how he flips his trumpet, and I say it's like he puts it in his holster. But you see me, I go like this. And they couldn't see my hands over the computer on the MP3 audio file. And I said, oh, Don spins his trumpet like it's a gun, and then I I think he puts it in his holster. Do you know what that taught me? People catch the stories. Jesus told 39 stories. Half of them, as we'll see, are about money. Half. Jesus talked more about money than he did prayer, discipleship in general, 
heaven and hell put together. Talk more about money. Jesus met them right where they were. And he said, like the story that I read to you during the, the elder prayer time, was about money. 39 parables, half of them are about money. Let, let's just spend a little time with Jesus on this this morning, and we'll pick up here next week. Matthew 4, 4. In the middle of the temptation, he answered and said, It is written, man should not live by bread alone, the temporal life, eating, working, having a house, taking care of your family, paying the bills, looking to the future, providing for needs, making sure that your children have what they need and your wife is cared for and your life is not falling apart. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's our temporal, ongoing life. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need the temporal life. I mean, we are not on a cloud with a harp yet. Or I don't think we ever will be. But you know what I mean. We're not in heaven yet. But this is not all there is. And we spend our life's energy as if this is all there is. We we focus as if this is all there is. That's coming, but this is all there is. And, And we're just fixated on the temporal and our health and our savings and our, you know, and we can really get upset if things are going wrong. I mean, people's lives fall apart. They lose whatever. Jesus said, don't live by, by just the temporal, but by the eternal, every word of God. Now look at chapter 6. Jesus, chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel, verse 19. Jesus is giving the greatest sermon he ever gave. By the way, uh, Matthew, if you know Matthew, Matthew, the tax collector. Do you remember how a tax collector was? They had books with columns. And they categorized people, you know, and, and they would put them in columns and add up their goods and charge them taxes. He was an accountant, was what he was. And so what Matthew does is he organizes all of Jesus' teaching into columns. And so I'm, I'm not exactly sure that Jesus actually said 5, 6, and 7 exactly all in one place. Because what we find is every part of this... Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Luke puts it in a whole different location. I, I think Matthew collected stuff kind of like, you know, our collections, and he put it in a book. And that's how the Holy Spirit wanted to put it in Matthew's Gospel. So what's amazing is this is actually probably 5, 6, and 7, a compilation, kind of like the content of, of most all of Jesus' sermons. And he put them all together. And look what he says in chapter 6 and verse 19. He just gets done with how to pray. And that's 6 from 5 down to 15. But then he gets in verse 19 into really uh, uh, meddling, uh, these people would have thought. And this is what he says, verse 19, Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. And I've told you many times, lay up means stack. The, The Greek word means to pile. It means to literally means do not lay one upon another, upon another, upon another. And, and I do know, I've told you the story, when I first started out in New England in ministry, uh, one of the new visitors invited us to see their house, and they, they just finished building it, and they said, we want you to see it. And they took us in, actually, to their closet, which in the parsonage we were living was larger than our entire bedroom, their closet. It was a drive-in closet. It wasn't a walk-in. It was a drive-in And uh, the man says, look, he says, I have the latest kind of closet. And I had never seen, he literally had 50 sweaters. And each one was, uh, you know how you send them to the cleaners and they clean them and wrap them up and put them in plastic. And and he had written on the end, you know, college football sweater. And I mean, and they were just like this. And it was 50 sweaters. I was very impressed. Then he had 50 shirts. He had about 30 pairs of shoes. And you know what? 
I thought of Matthew 6:19. Don't stack treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But stack, he uses the same word so that we understand it. Stack up your treasures in heaven because moth and rust won't get it there and thieves can never break in and steal. But here's the big reason. For where your treasure is, your heart will be. And there comes the, the, the how we're going to go through life. If my treasures are that piano... And they're on earth. And every day I get older, I'm getting further away, and I'm dreading the fact that I am going to have to leave my treasures. But if I have taken my treasures and I have sent them ahead, then the older I get, my arms get wider because I'm getting closer to my treasures. And death is not dreadful. That's why Paul says, uh, when I die, it's my hope and joy and crown of rejoicing because I'm going to see what I live for. I'm going to see my treasures. And that's what Jesus is giving through here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It will be your orientation. It will be whether or not death is dreadful or or delightful because death is a a taking down of the tent, a rolling up of the temporary. Uh, It's it's leaving behind that which is, is falling apart and frail and fragile and temporal and leaving it behind for what is better, far better. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Now, look at verse 24. He says, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and your money. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life. This is how you change, he says. See, he's reasoning with them about what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and body? He says, come on, don't think just about the temporal. Think about the eternal. Uh, isn't life more than food, the body more than clothing? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. And on and on it goes. Turn real quickly to Luke 12, and that's where we're going to end this morning, where we began, actually, when... I read this for the prayer, Luke 12:13, And I want you to think of these verses the second time through. And these should be yellowed and starred and highlighted and um, marked and noted in your Bible. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, my brother, tell him to divide the inheritance with me. That's a temporal life thing. I want my share. I want my antique. I want my ownership of the property, I want the money, I want the stock, whatever. Tell him to divide it with me. But he said to him, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? He says, I'm not into this temporal stuff. I'm not going to spend my time haggling over that. Jesus, I mean, you can just see him. Verse 15, take heed. He says, watch out. Beware of the cancer of covetousness. For life does not consist. Real life isn't measured by the abundance. It is in America. It is in Western Europe. It is in the burgeoning Far East. It is more and more around our world, but it's not in God's book. But in in the temporal life, it is by how much you possess, but with God it's not. So, so life doesn't consist in how much you possess. And you know what? If some of you want to get out of depression, why don't you take that to heart? You will never catch up with some people in this world and in this church. So why don't you not want to? Why compete? 
Why not just stop and just say, I, my, I'm going to earn as much as I can to live on as least as possible so I can give as much as I can to the Lord, not to the church. It's not a capital campaign for the earth. This is a reorientation of life for the Lord. You know, I heard someone say, I don't think they realized I was listening, but I heard him say, oh, man, you know, when those, those missionary teams start going, I get about 40 letters. I thought, you get 40 opportunities to share and to be rich in giving? I admire you. I envy you. I don't get 40 letters. Isn't that how we look on it? Like, oh, I get it. I get it. Everybody's asking for my money. No, God is giving you more opportunities to be rich. But if you're looking at your treasure on earth, it's people trying to hack away at it. And, and you're going to guard it. And you're not going to give that away. You're going to protect it. And the older you get, you're going to dread having to give it up because you've saved and focused on it. And God is giving you 40 opportunities to send it ahead and to look forward. It's amazing. The different orientation, he asks. Okay. So, he says, take heed, beware of covetous. Now, verse 16, here's the parable. The ground of this certain rich man uh, was very profitable, and it yielded plentifully. In other words, he had a good job, wise investments. The guy, I mean, everything, he, he he could spot a deal. He could buy and sell. He was really good. Verse 17, so he thought within himself. Big problem. He left God out. He just... He had a little counsel with himself. He thought within himself, hmm, what am I going to do with this? He didn't say, God, oh, what am I going to do with all this? I don't, I don't want to be trapped and ensnared by it. What should I do with it? No, he said, hmm, what I thought within myself. What should I do since I have no room to store my crops? What he should have said is, I'm going to give them away. Do you know what the cure is to affluenza? Giving. you know what the cure is to materialism? Giving. Hilarious. That's the Greek word, hilarion, excited and joyful giving. It's the giving of a poor person who has nothing, but if they can give their last $20 bill away to some uh, person in need, they, they, they thrill to give it. Okay, verse uh, 18. This is the American dream. This is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater ones. I'm going to increase my ability to make money and store it. And there's nothing wrong with the making. There's a big problem with the storing. He left God out of his plans, and I'll store my crops and my goods. And now he left God out of his future. He said, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Sounds like uh, one of these people can retire, you know, young and, and play golf or travel in their boat the rest of their life. Got many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. That's the retirement mantra. Eat healthily, drink moderately, and be merry, okay? But God said to him, fool, that should put a shiver through your retirement plans if you've left God out of them. If your retirement plans are all financial when you're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, fool, God says, tonight your soul is going to be required of you. Then who will those things be whom you have provided? You know, we can't hold on to them. They're not ours. We just use them during life. Even when we die, we can't hold on to them because the government will take them and, and the lawyers will take them and, and time will take them and upheaval financially will take them. You can't keep them. Whose are they going to be? That's a good question to ask. Verse 21. He left God out of his dreams. So is he who lays up treasure for himself 
and isn't rich toward God. Vitality in our eternal life means we're alive and thinking and motivated by the fact that we are already immortal. We're thinking eternally when we start seeing what our moments look like as they're observed from God's throne. And all of a sudden we see that our lifespan and our resources were all given us by another who owns us and wants a return on his investment. We need to pray for vitality in the eternal life of our children. But more than that, in the eternal life of their parents and grandparents. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your son being so practical. He seems to be able to get right into our pocket and our heart. I pray he would get right into our soul and help us to want to lay hold on eternal life. And if the world around us is telling us there's a plague of affluenza, we better wake up and make sure that we're inoculated against it. And that inoculation, the vaccination, is being what Paul calls ready to give, ready to share, rich in good works. And those who don't have a hold on this world, but they have sent it ahead to heaven. Help us to be those kind of people for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. God bless you as you go.